So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Canadaland Commons is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Wealth Simple. If you are a listener of this podcast, you can get your first $10,000 managed for free for two years just by visiting wealthsimple.com slash commons. Go check it out. Take a look. Even if you have 20 bucks to put away, it's a start. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. I'm Ryan McMahon. Ashley Chinati is off in Europe. Go, Ashley. Today on this podcast, we are a two-party system, unlike BC, which is now a three-party system. From Canada land, this is Commons. This week on Commons, we are going to have a sit-down featured chat with Anishinaabe TIFF programmer, Jesse Wente, and we're going to talk about appropriation and politics. We're also going to dive into, is this a thing, to find out if we found some things that are things. Or that are not things. Or that are not I things. I think we found some things that are not things. Shocker! It's a miracle. No. Last week, the BC election happened. 87 seats were up for grabs in the B.C. legislature, which means that you required 44 seats for majority. And shocker of shockers, the Liberals got 40, approximately 41 percent of the popular vote and only 43 seats, followed closely by the NDP holding 41 seats up from the 35 they got in the 2013 election and with about 40% of popular vote. And then the Green now hold three seats, earning 16% of the popular vote and possibly the balance of power. There have been recounts sought in five of the writings, as some of the writings were very closely contested. BC Elections has permitted two of these recounts to go forward. Um, one of them was in the writing of Courtney Comox, where the NDB candidate won by a scant nine votes. And the writing of Vancouver False Creek, where the recount was accepted because there was an advanced voting ballot account that recorded 403 votes for one candidate, while the tally sheet in the parcel envelope containing ballots for that candidate only listed 399 votes. I, I have to say, you know, I've only ever visited BC uh, for short amounts of time. I stayed up all night watching this, the live ticker, it got me hooked. This was a fascinating election built around, you know, ideologies and pipeline protests and and sort of a, a split between sort of a metro vote 
and and sort of a, a, a more sort of country vote, if you will. And uh, I was hooked. I woke up tired the next day. I, I think <laughs> I stayed up till you know four or five in the morning watching yeah, this, BC time. Yeah, this, this damn ticker. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you look at the map. Vancouver went uh, very NDP, and then kind of the middle of BC went very liberal, and then the the west side also went NDP. So it's kind of like three BCs in, in a sense. Which I think we see in provincial elections all the time, and and this one really highlighted that split. And and by the way, watching it, it really dawned on me how important voting is. We're talking about nine votes. That's a that's a household. Yeah. That's nine votes that can sway the power of an election. And and man, this was a this was a fascinating split and and a really big moment for for BC politics. The absentee ballots have yet to be counted, and there were 176,000 absentee ballots. And, you know, in a riding where you've got nine votes splitting the two candidates, 100 absentee votes could make a difference, as could the recount. And it were the B.C. Liberals to take over that seat, you'd then be looking at a liberal majority government if they get that 44th seat. You know, to the purists, the political purists that listen to this podcast, I'm in over my head. I wish our political nerd friend Ashley were here to tell us if 176,000 absentee votes is a big number or not, but it seems like an extraordinarily large number. It is larger than the 2013 election. There is a UBC economics professor, Kevin Milligan, who's conducted his own statistical analysis on the possible outcomes remaining in the election. It is likely that you'll still have the liberal minority government. That was the most likely scenario with about 78.8% of the results in the simulations that he ran giving that scenario. But you could imagine if one or two seats flips here and there, you could end up with those Greens really holding the balance of power, especially if it equalizes more and you end up with, for example, 43-43 or 42, 43. And, and what an interesting time to be in the Green Party. And who would have ever thought, really, Canadian politics is in the back pocket of the Green Party in BC? Because the questions that need to be answered in BC are so large and have such a, an impact on the economy. What a weird time to be in the, in the Green Party. Do you think that the NDP was expecting this result or expecting to win? I have uh, some friends that are organizers and pretty well-known and vocal supporters of the BC NDP that before the election uh, confided in me and told me that they didn't think they were going to be as close as they ended up being. And as I was texting with people on election night, yeah, it came to pass that many on the floor in the rooms of the NDP were quite surprised, I think kind of speaks to the political climate, the difficult political climate in BC right now. So Kermit the Frog said, it's not easy being green. <laughs> so we'll see how it plays out, right? It's, uh, I apologize. By the way, I apologize. That was unnecessary. <laughs> it does signal an appetite for change. I mean, more people voted against the Liberal Party than for um, the Liberal Party. And, you know, if it doesn't end up working out for the NDP this time. I do think that they're well positioned for the next election. This would be the Liberal government seeking a six consecutive term. And if they either get a majority government or have to govern with a minority government and people are still not satisfied with 
the results or what's coming out of their policies, you could see a big shift towards the NDP. I mean, no one ever thought the NDP was going to win in Alberta. That's right. And, and you know, as you take a closer look at well, specifically BC, you really start to see how the Liberal Party kind of doesn't look like the Liberal Party that we know. And the NDPs don't quite look like the NDPs that we think we know. And, and yeah, what a time. You know, what a time. And, you know, Shortcuts actually covered this last week for those listeners of Commons that don't subscribe to Shortcuts we might ask you to go back and listen to last week's shortcuts because they did a great job covering the initial reaction to the election and, and dig into some of these issues a little bit deeper. But we will also circle back to cover this once the all the dust is settled and we'll, we'll break this apart with our political nerd friend, Ashley. Yes. The absentee ballots will be counted between May 22nd and 24th. So we will wait with bated breath until then. After May long, man. Yeah. We'll see you then. We go to our Is This a Thing segment where we look at some smaller segments of news and determine whether or not they are actually news. Are they actually things that we should be concerned with or care about? Most of the things that we have discussed have ended up being things, but I think this week... We are going to surprise you with some things that are not things. That's right. We've reached out to listeners of Commons to ask for things that may or may not be things. And we were pleasantly surprised this week. If you want to email us and let us know if you have a thing that may or may not be a thing, you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. So we have former Nova Scotia Justice Department lawyer Alex Cameron is planning to sue Premier McNeil and Justice Minister Diana Whalen and the Attorney General's Office for defamation, abuse of public office, constitutional violation, and constructive dismissal. So Cameron was an individual who, in a recent case, working on behalf of the Department of Justice, presented a brief implying that the Mi'kmaq are a conquered people to support the argument that the Crown was only required to consult with unconquered people, and the Mi'kmaq were conquered, and thus the government did not have a constitutional duty to consult. He later apologized, and he was removed from the case. The defense was also removed, shortly after retired from the Justice Department on April 30th. And his affidavit claims that he retired because the respondent's conduct towards him, including public statements, rendered continued employment intolerable. So he is now suing said employer. Hmm. Is this a thing? Doesn't seem like a thing. However, if we have his address, we could photocopy a copy of the Constitution and send it to him and uh, maybe highlight and explain how Indigenous rights and title are upheld by the Constitution that governs this very country. Not a thing. And as an employment lawyer, to me, it currently reads like a disgruntled employee who did a bad thing and who maybe got admonished by his employer quit and is now suing said employer. And my employment law hat would tell me I'd be very curious to pick apart his statement of claim. So I don't think this is a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. Our next thing is there's a group of people calling on the GG, the governor general, to remove Prime Minister Trudeau because of the action on M103. They are currently calling on a legion of Canadians to descend upon Ottawa to have the GG consider removing Trudeau over M103. Is this a thing? Can we show up in Ottawa and have David Johnston 
do some work for us? I mean, people can march about whatever they want, I suppose. They can march saying that they want Trudeau to wear silly hats every time he shows up on TV, but it doesn't mean we have to take them seriously. I mean, they weren't granted a permit either for this this march, so it doesn't seem like they are being taken very seriously by the powers that be. It kind of also shows how bad we are at protesting in this country, where we get some wacky ideas and call for our democracy to be thrown out the window and have this guy who's in an honorary house somewhere near the parliament buildings in Ottawa. <laughs> Topple the entire government. To come and just throw out the government. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not a thing. I don't think it's a thing. Definitely not a thing. But thank you to Sarah Peel for sending it in to ask us whether or not this is a thing. Local bad boy Don Meredith has resigned from the Senate, sort of, kind of, because he didn't actually resign in his letter. But it seems like he will be stepping down from his Senate position over the scandal where he had a relationship with a young woman when she was only 16, which progressed from flirtatious online chats to fondling sexually explicit live videos and ultimately to sexual intercourse just before this young woman turned 18 and just shortly after, um, a clear, seemingly clear abuse of power. This has taken over two years and cost the taxpayer somewhere around well, north of $600,000 to get to this point. And I think this is definitely a thing. And now that Meredith is gone and he will fall back into his own family life and civilian life. This is a thing, and everyone should stay away from Don Meredith's thing, especially if they are underage. Post Media has published two separate cartoons um, lambasting Minister Harjit Sajjan. One cartoon features Sajjan in a pot of boiling water with the title Lies, which invokes iconic imagery of a Sikh martyr being tortured. And another cartoon featured Harjit's beard and mustache growing with him stylized in the manner of Pinocchio. So a bit of some creepy racist political cartoons happening here, courtesy of The Sun. Is this a thing, Ryan? It is a thing for sure. And there is something that always creeps me out about political cartoons because political cartoons get a lot of leeway around, you know, what they're saying and the freedom of expression and speech and censorship and everything else. So unfortunately, yes, this is definitely a thing. And and this is probably one of the greatest arguments for diversity in newsrooms and in, in media is had someone been in that room that would have known a little something that might not have been published, or at least there would have been a debate around publishing those images. Yes, some sort of discussion, someone raising a potential red flag. I liken this to the good old Pepsi gate. Um, (laughs) You know, if someone had actually been in that room in the marketing talks for (laughs) Pepsi, and maybe would have, you know, discussed the fact that having Kendall Jenner trying to seemingly shut down systemic racism with a Pepsi wasn't going to work. By dropping her wig into the hands of a uh, black woman. Yeah, yeah, and having a Muslim woman photograph her. You think about the chain of command that that 
idea has to pass through and then and then you get to sort of you know storyboarding and you get to pre-production and no one through the whole process went are you sure Raising the finger. <laughs> Are you sure? I believe that the daughter of Martin Luther King tweeted, if daddy had only known the power of a Pepsi. Oh, God, that's dark. <laughs> he may be alive had he had a Pepsi. Oh, I know. Oh, if he had Kendall Jenner and a Pepsi. This is a thing. And uh, it's one of those sobering ones that remind us of how much work there is left to do. How much we have a lack of diversity in the places that are disseminating our information. And how much I need a Pepsi. Ugh, gross. <laughs> Canada Land Commons is brought to you by Wealth Simple, our exclusive sponsor. Choose Wealth Simple if you want to make your investing life easy and simple. And to show you just how easy and simple it is, I'm actually going to invest my father's money right now on air. We're even going to call my dad and uh, see what dad wants to do with this 5000 bucks. Okay, sure. Hi, dad. So I'm investing your money right now. So I'm using Wealthsimple, which I've talked to you about. It's the online program that allows you to invest your money um, and you can use with a few simple clicks, you can get set up in an investment of your choice. And so what would you like to invest for, Dad? Would you like to invest to make a big purchase? Would you like to invest for retirement? Building a nest egg for your beautiful daughter? Should we say retirement? Yeah. Retirement and other. And perhaps making a big purchase, like if you decide to uh, build that house in the Caribbean. You're going to say yeah. home. And your other goal, I'm going to say, is to build house... In the Caribbean. All right. So it's doing something. So what kind of risk are you comfortable with? Uh, somewhere in the middle of somewhere. Okay. So let's say you'd be willing to take some small losses to earn a little bit more long term. All right. So it's suggesting for you a stable portfolio, which will give you the flexibility to draw from your investments. And you can always make changes later. You also have the option to make your portfolio socially responsible, if you'd like. So that would be investing primarily in low carbon, in clean tech, or in sustainable growth companies. Well, I care about climate change. All right. So let's be socially responsible. Yeah. Clean technology, low carbon. All right. So then it makes a series of assumptions in terms of growth rate and your monthly savings. And it's giving you an asset mix of government bonds, low-carbon global stocks, and Canadian stocks. And then after you invest, your plan's going to be reviewed by their portfolio managers who may recommend a different portfolio and asset mix to better suit your needs. And then we get to uh, start with this plan. All right, Dad, well, thank you for participating in this uh, experiment. And uh, you're going to have investments. It's going to be very exciting. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Dad. Bye. Okay, bye. So as we just proved, investing with Wealthsimple is actually quite easy. I was able to create a portfolio for my father in under five minutes. He's well on his way to his Caribbean dream house made of bamboo. And thank you to Wealthsimple for providing the service. And as a reminder, Canaland Commons listeners get their first $10,000 managed for free for two years. And since I've made my dad listen to this podcast, he falls into this group. You can access this opportunity and this discount at wealthsimple.com slash commons.
So we're doing a live show what? on Saturday, May 27th. What? And I mean by we are doing... Ashley and Ryan are doing it because I am unfortunately in Banff. You won't be there, but you will be in the show. I will be there in spirit. We're and doing some fun things with you, and though. With my face. With, yeah, your yeah, face. We'll be face. on a, a screen or in a microphone. You're going to be there. I'll be there. there I'll be there. Yeah. You should be there. I, I mean, I'm there. I'm participating via Skype and video. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to this thing because it's going to be fun. I will be there with pants on Saturday, May 27th, 7 p.m. At the Monarch Tavern, that's 12 Clinton Street, just off of college, Clinton just off of college, here in Toronto. And if people want to come, it's a recommended $5 donation. We're going to donate all that money to a charity that works with refugees here in Toronto. The most anti-CPC thing we could think of. Well, and it's funny you bring that up because that very weekend, their leadership race is happening and they will have elected their leaders. So we're going to have all kinds Overlord of- Overlord Kelly Leach. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we're going to have all kinds of fun things at the live show. There will be drinking games every time uh, the words old stock Canadian- Canadian uh, values. Canadian val- Every time that's said, someone's going to have to chug a Labatt 50. It's going to be a fun time and uh, everyone is welcome to come out and enjoy themselves. This taping is live in concert at the same time as the Conservative Party Leadership Convention. So we are going to be following the action, tweeting the action, yelling at the action, following it very closely. Booing, cheering the action. It's going to get wild. It all takes place Saturday, May 27th, 2017, 7 p.m. at the Monarch Tavern. We'll see you there. We're here with TIFF programmer and CBC Metro Morning radio columnist Jesse Wente to talk about appropriation and its connection to politics in Canada. And I think it's going to be an interesting, rich conversation. Um, thanks for being here, Jesse. Well, thanks for having me. So let's try to connect very clearly to start with before we get real muddy in the conversation. Let's try to connect clearly appropriation, cultural appropriation and politics in Canada. How do, how do those connect? I mean, their, their appropriation is rooted in politics in Canada, much as it's rooted in the very notions of Canada itself. And we shouldn't actually just limit this to Canada because much of what we'll say today also applies to uh, the other half of Turtle Island uh, south of the, the border or the current border. So we have to realize that when Canada was founded, so we, you know a lot of talk around 150 years. So we go back 150 years. Um, when Canada was just nine years old is when it passed the Indian Act in uh, 1876, which of course is the legislation that governed the relationship between First Nations people, Métis and Inuit people, and the Canadian government. Governs us to this day. Governs us to this day. Still exists called the Indian Act. In the exact same way. Uh, absolutely. As it did... 150 years ago. Yeah. And we should point out, this is unique, right? There is no other ethnic group or cultural group that is legislated in this way in Canada. So right from the very beginning, this starts a unique relationship that has to be taken into context when we're discussing cultural appropriation, because these notions don't occur. Colonialism and the tools of colonialism, of which appropriation is one, don't function necessarily in the same way with all the different groups. All marginalized people, particularly people of color on Turtle Island, 
suffer under colonialism, but we do in nuanced and different ways. And foundational to the way indigenous people experience it is the relationship that we were here first and that that we are legislated. It was key for both colonial states, again, on Turtle Island, to legislate us, not just do this in an ephemeral, casual way like they do with, and I don't even want to call it casual, it's a s- systemic, but they didn't legislate it in the way they did with us. So the first real piece of, uh, you know, the Indian Act in itself is an appropriation document. Mm. You know, it, it governs our land, our voting rights, all sorts of things that extract from us and give it the, the, that power to someone else. When it comes to cultural appropriation, the big key or um, amendment to the Indian Act came only four years into its existence. So Canada is only 13 years old when in 1880 it passes the potlatch ban. Now, the potlatch ban outlawed our cultures, it outlawed our ceremonies, our storytelling, and it eased the theft of our cultural artifacts to be placed within museums and cultural institutions uh, everywhere. The potlatch ban wasn't lifted in Canada until 1951, mm-hmm. so more than 70 years. So if you can imagine, that meant people lived and died under this, this law. Uh, without necessarily knowing their their culture. This is aside. We're not even talking about the other techniques of appropriation that were occurring at the time. Land right. removal, residential school, all of those other tools of colonialism right. that were being used. Leave those aside for the moment. We can get to them in a second. But this is just this one cultural piece isn't lifted until 1951, which we should point out is still almost 10 years before uh, Indigenous people had the right to vote federally in uh, in Canada. In the U.S., they passed a very similar law called the uh, Pagan Acts Law, which was passed four years after our potlatch ban in 1884, and it outlawed all pagan ceremonies. Uh, they were a larger umbrella. They didn't name it specifically after indigenous because they were also trying to capture black and African ceremonies that were still continuing um, in the States. So they wanted to blanket the whole thing, but we should not mistake it. It was like the potlatch man, very specifically targeted at indigenous ceremonies and, and uh, culture and our stories. That law wasn't lifted until the Religious Freedom Act was passed in the U.S. in 1979. So we're talking almost 100 years. In my lifetime. In our lifetime. Very much in our lifetime. So when we talk about how is this political, I think we just stated it. And And I think it's important that we understand we didn't politicize this, just like we didn't politicize our identities. Because again, our identities was part of the Indian Act. It gave the government control over who was indigenous and who was not. So when we talk about identity politics, that is identity politics. Hmm. They politicized our identities, not us. Hmm. Just like they politicized appropriation, not us. Yeah. Hadia, when you hear identity politics, isn't like fighting on Twitter at midnight to uphold whiteness and its power structures too, isn't that too a form of identity politics? I think the use of the term identity politics is somehow meant to say, you know, you can't use your black identity, you can't use your indigenous identity but they're using their white identity the entire time. Dun, dun, dun. So <laughs> it's, it stems back from this idea that whiteness is neutral. It's the base mm. and that everything else is an identity. But if you're white, that's an identity that's just normal. Um, so I think that sort of stems into the use of this term identity politics, forgetting that whiteness is like one of the biggest identities and it's used all the time to support all sorts of things and all sorts of structures. Yeah, I think it gets interesting where... The threat of strong indigenous or black communities, the threat of solidarity 
between those communities. Man, like, let's reimagine this country. Should there be solidarity between those communities? And I think that that is well underway. And I, I just dream of a time where that reality is realized, where we draw power with and from each other is, is a real threat to the state. And hence, the legislation to take away the lives of the people and how that connects to actual cultural appropriation, it's undeniable. Like, I don't know how people can't see that. Well, it's all smokescreen, right? You know, because the the mere act of uh, legislating appropriation is in itself an acknowledgement of the power of our stories. They're actually telling us that these are so powerful, we we need to keep them away. We need to, to steal them and silence them and erase them because we realize what a existential threat and not just existential threat, very real threat it is to them. And I can't help but think all of this over the last few days is really entirely based in fear. This is really, this is the fear of privilege being lost, of a new paradigm that is out of their control, of a technology that has allowed this, that they can't, they don't understand, that they can't control, that is quickly making traditional media obsolete, not just from a functional delivery production side point, but also from a philosophical position point. You know, we're in a state now where the audience is much further ahead in a lot of these discussions than the media that is attempting to report on that audience, to tell those audience things. That's what we're seeing, actually, is we're seeing a friction where one side of the media, the traditional media says something, the new side refutes it right back and they can't reconcile not to use a loaded uh, what is becoming a loaded term they can't reconcile that we have a much easier time reconciling that because this is our lived experience this is why ultimately we will win which is that these arguments aren't rhetorical arguments for us mm. this isn't about i'm not here to have an intellectual debate it's not a philosophical ephemeral in the universe kind of no because uh, it affects our daily lives we all know we go back to our communities we can see it it's not a, an ephemeral thing. It's, it's physical. It's, it's real. It's tangible. It touches. And so, you know, the power of our arguments, we can use all those, that rhetorical language, you know, we can use all of that, that same sort of skill set to fight back with them. But in the end, we're fighting for our survival. They're fighting for an abstract idea that is there to uphold their privilege and their place. And the reality is that abstract idea cannot do that for them. If they really want to uphold it, it will require much more dramatic action and the type of dramatic action that we're actually seeing in the U.S. And, and Canadians have to understand that this, you know, we are in a culture war. Let's not pretend we're not. Uh, we're seeing it fought in a very different way, but we are just trailing behind that. A lot of the same powers that want to conflate these ideas, that want to smokescreen, to gaslight, all of these things, that is a strategy. That is meant to achieve their goals. We should not pretend that this is happening in isolation. This is the system working as it were, as it, as it was designed to, producing people like this to make these arguments for generations and generations, to confound our people for generations and generations. The reality is though tools now exist where we don't have to be confounded by this. We can sit in this, this room, record this podcast, bring out, we don't need to sit in a newsroom at the CBC or CTV or any of these places. We can do this right here and people will still hear it. So they can't come to grips with that paradigm. So this is the, the one solace I'll take besides the fact that they put their faces to this. So now we don't have to pretend that we don't know mm. who, who the problems are is that we, we really, we should take solace in that, that this pettiness, this grasping at straws that they're doing is a sign that they realize their earth is shifting beneath them and they are not prepared for it. 
I just want to write a short story with a native person in it. <laughs> Leave me alone. Well, the thing it always that comes that I come back to is that saying that's been going around a lot that when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Oh, yeah. So when Whoa. you have never. You know, when you've just gotten the job and you've never had to question whether or not that was because of your skin or if that thing that was said was a racial slight or not. Um, I think one of the things I find as a black Canadian as compared to being in the States, and the States are just open about the racism. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just know who to avoid. I know who gives me the dirty stares. I know it when I get called an N-word in the street. But here, because it's a little bit more subtle, Hmm. because we haven't had that same history of slavery and appropriation of black bodies, is that I find myself always questioning, you know, was that, am I being sensitive? Was that, was that what I thought it meant? Or, and you don't have anyone to bounce it off of Hmm. because you're the only black woman at the firm. And so you're just like, these thoughts are just rattling around in your mind. But people just aren't used to competing for things because they were the default and they got they got the benefits. Though. Yeah, which goes back to the legislation, uh, and and let's we can look at the word Aboriginal, mm. or the the how the terminology and how we are defined. It was Indian. It's, it, my card in my pocket says Indian status card, so I'm going to roll with Indian, because at least when someone calls me an Indian, I know what I'm working with. Right. Yep. But when someone calls me an Aboriginal, I'm like, hmm. I can't tell if you're racist or if you've read an article about being PC and that's the word you're to call us. And it's the same thing now with indigenous. I don't know what we're working with here. I'd much rather be called a drunken Indian Hmm. in the street than a good speaking indigenous person. It's like, wait a minute. I need to to unpack that. I'm going to be in bed tonight (laughs) at three in the morning going, what did they mean? You know, Um, because you're right. It is it is sort of under the surface. And we've done a really good job in this country of leaving it there. And we can't also ignore the fact that I think on a a couple episodes back, we talked about the pay to play fundraising and how you can pay to get into these really exclusive political spaces. Well, who are the people? paying to get in there. It is the powerful media elite and the people that are, whether we like to admit it or not, are influencing politics and policy in this country, right? Ken White himself is on a Canadian Heritage expert advisory group for Canadian Heritage. And this is this is one of the guys that called for the appropriation prize pot, right? So we can't give people a free pass here. We have to really have some due diligence done and, and inspect who these players are and how that actually influences the, you know, the politics of the day. Well, and we should also be acknowledging that we can't expect change to come from doing the same thing over and over again. You can't expect the story to change if you're going to ask the same people to tell their story over and over again. So if, if the government, which gives a lot of, you know, lip service to reconciliation and these sort of notions of nation to nation states, but you know, uh, if they actually want to do that, then it probably requires them to speak to different people and to listen to different people than they have been listening to for all this time. If you want to reform and do something new, it doesn't mean doing the same thing you've always been doing and trying to hope that it will somehow turn out differently. Uh, They have a name for that. It's insanity. So we can't do that. So, And I think that's foundational to the culture in this country in terms of if you want to shift the way we view ourselves, we have to shift who gets to paint those pictures, who gets to tell those stories, what stories they get to tell. And the reality is to expect the people that greenlight those stories. And I mean, right up at the government, the people that, and the heritage ministry that fund all of these different things, you can expect to go all the way up 
and have the same people sitting there and it come down different. That isn't how this is going to work. And so you're absolutely correct. We have to hold them to task and we have to demand that if change is real and we should acknowledge Canadian society can decide not to reconcile, right? This, this is up to the government and really the Canadian people to decide if they actually want to go to this. And they have the right to decide not to do it. They also then have the right to live in what that means for, for the nation and everything going forward. If they actually want to change, then you have to change the people and you have to change the dialogue. It's not good enough. Mm. Uh, tokenism is not good enough. You know, I, I just got appointed to the board of the board of directors of the Canon Council for the Arts. I'm not, I don't want to go there as a token. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in seeing how I can, there's more tab- places at that table, mm. not just at that table, but in the leadership positions at that table, mm. so that when the Canada Council looks to fund things, it comes through a different lens than the one it has been coming through for so, so long. And we need that at all levels of government and institutions in this country. Mm. And Hadia, b- before we started recording, you brought up being one of the only uh, black bodies in the room on Bay Street. Mm. And, and these experiences, I I mean, there has to be people at the table. Otherwise, you find yourself alone. Speak to that experience, you know, like that's a this isn't just in political spaces, but in in all spaces, because Bay Street industry corporations, again, have major influence over the politics in this country. When you look at who's at the top and then they start talking about diversity in the boardroom and diversity in their ranks, what that means is less of them. Mm. And. That's why I think you see a lot of policies that pay lip service to diversity, but don't actually really do that much about it, because that means less space for the people who are currently in power. Like you're asking these people to give up power. And that is a very difficult thing. There's this game that we run in one of the classes that I TA. And it's a simple game where you give out like different colored chips. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but you give out different colored chips at the start and people go around and they trade and try and get some of the high value chips. Once you've clasped hands, you have to make a deal. Otherwise, you're just stuck there holding hands. And then we separate the group into three separate groups based on sort of bands of who accumulated chip value. And then you notice that the people who have higher chips start to get further away from the people in the middle and the end. And then we start giving the top group the authority to make rules about the game. So they can make a rule that if I come up to you as someone in band one and I want to make a deal with you, you can't say no. You have to make a deal with me. And that can become the rule of the game. And you will notice that even in the simple game, they start making up these insane rules that just give them more power and consolidate their power. That sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Where have we seen this before? And this is just in a simple game with MBA students who are in a class about power, so they know the context of what they're supposed to be being taught and they're yeah. teaching, and they still can't help themselves from making making rules that, that sort of solidify their power. So yeah. I feel like this should be a required game for anyone who is in any boardroom or any political context, just so at least even if they're in the bottom band, they can understand what it feels like to be powerless. Because what happens to the people in the bottom band is they start revolting. Mm. They start refusing to play by the rules. They start refusing to play the game. And that's what's happening They take here. to Twitter to say, hell no, <laughs> this, this, no more, right? Yeah. And, and we, have to, we have to, I think power is such a, I mean, as a powerful word. But at the end of the day, yeah, it is, it is all about power. And to be able to extract what you want, when you want, from people that don't hold that powers, 
I mean, it, it's a hell of a drug, I imagine. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know much about that, but... For the people at the top, those are the people who decide what committees are going to get struck, who's going to sit on those committees, what issues are going to be important for the Canadian people, you know, what we're going to talk about, what commissions are going to happen, what reports are going to be investigated and put out to Canadian people. And so if you don't have people of diverse interests up at the top, those reports are going to be very skewed to the dominant majority. And those questions, the questions that are asked are going to be skewed towards the dominant majority. And in this case, we see the gatekeepers of stories and news and journalism doing the same thing. And and we shouldn't be naive and say that that is somehow divorced from political life. The politics in um, Western societies is largely driven through the relationship between the media and the citizenry. You know, media especially journalism, was conceived as a public service meant to inform the populace so that they could vote correctly and, and on an informed basis. We're, we're radically skewing from that main mission. A lot of that is due to, you know, the, the profit motive that has emerged in journalism where, you know, what, we're, what we've actually seen is since, since profit motive came in, you know, you know, TV news in North America, say in the 30s and 40s, was a public service. The networks did it not because it made the money. They, made, they lost vast amounts of money doing it, but they did it because it was an obligation under their, their license. So everyone had to run, run news, and they did it very differently. That morphed at some point. And now what you see is news agencies, journalists. We saw this on Twitter. If you watched, go watch my feed, your feed, anyone's feed from this past weekend. You see these journalists spinning these rhetorical arguments, divorced from actual fact, from objective fact. You can read it, it's numbers, these sorts of basic facts. They they skew it because what they're doing is they're gaining an audience through the affirmation of beliefs that their audience holds. They don't actually need facts. They just have to regurgitate and make their audience feel that affirm what their audience has already decided is true. Well, and if they're doing that, I mean, you talked about the choice for Canadians to reject reconciliation or not. Well, if we just keep redlining this one storyline that there is this band of angry natives out there trying to take down the system and and, and witch hunting and, you know, we're seeing words like mobbing, mm. you know, lynching, like where these things, uh, by the way, are actually currently happening in North America, thrown about all willy-nilly. This is what makes the political discourse in this country. This is what informs Joe Canada in the Tim Hortons in Musum in Saskatchewan, right? Like the media they consume plays an integral part in the politics of the day. And that's inseparable. A bunch of people on Twitter being angry does not compare to Richard Spencer's mob of people in a park holding torches. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, you know, if if people telling you that they don't like what you're saying is upsetting, be a woman on Twitter for 10 minutes. No. Get a couple death threats and a couple rape threats. You know, if you want to trade, I'll happily have people tell me I don't like what you're writing versus like, I want to rape and murder you. That's easy trade. And we've spoken, you know, about solidarity and we do need solidarity. And it's about so much of this is a smokescreen. You know, they divide us. They want us to tell different stories, to be angry at each other. When in the reality is this is a, a class issue that we're facing. What we're seeing is, you know, we talk about the 1% or this, you're seeing the elite of the elite fundamentally trying to keep us discordant and not unified because they absolutely realize that when it comes to physical numbers, if we wanted to revolt, we could. But we, we are too distracted by all of these things going on to actually come together and realize that while our experiences are nuanced and slightly different, 
we are actually all in the same struggle together. Mm-hmm. The struggle is the same. And we do need solidarity in order to overthrow these sorts of forces. And this is political and it is cultural and it's all these things for all of us because it has to happen. It occurred to us in all those mechanisms for us to write it as I have to, have to occur in all those spaces as well. And we do need to recognize that fundamentally this is about economics of who has, who has not. That manifests itself in appropriation, who has control over voices, media, all of these things. And we must resist as a unified, and this this isn't even just about people of color. There's tons of white people in the exact same situation who have been taught and told something to to be divide against us, when in the reality, they're in the same spot. They're not exactly the same spot. Again, it's a nuanced, but they're not that far off and the same struggles they're facing are the ones we have and the opponents or the people that are imposing this on us are the same for all of us as well. And we have to get together, unify, maybe, I don't know how we clear the smoke screen because that's all they're going to constantly produce for us is to try to distract us. But we do have to, as you and I discussed earlier this morning, see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's a light for a whole lot of us. And we do need to be linked arm in arms because again, politically, What do we need to do? We need to vote these people out. Hmm. We need to change. We need to get new people into politics that are afraid to go into politics now because of the way of what it's become. That will require a unified movement, a joining in voices. And I hope certainly this weekend has taught me there's tons, tons of people, both within our communities and outside our communities that are listening and are willing to unify and come together. That's the big hope for us. I have a question. Do you think part, you spoke to fear earlier. Do you think part of the fear comes from recognizing what they did or what they've done and fearing that if we get into power that we're going to do that to them? Absolutely. The, the biggest fear for a colonial state is that they themselves will be colonized because despite their denial of all of this history, despite their obscuring all of this, deep down they know. They actually know the violence and oppression that it took to grant them the privilege that they have. They know it deep in the bones. The institutions know it. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., it's a haunted place because it knows in its heart that it's all built on blood and death. And so I do think that institutionally in their bones, I don't know if they would express it like this or if the the over, over culture would ever actually name it in this way. But I think they feel it deep down. It's their biggest, darkest fear. Why do they make movies about alien invasions? Why is that so persuasive in our culture? It's because our culture fears that exact invasion of a culture they don't know coming in and imposing something on them. It is deep, deep, and it's because they know what they did to us. I'm just going to hide my white man on the reserve manifesto as we continue this. And that's capital capital W, capital M. One thing's interesting, you've raised the uh, point that you know there are other there are white people who are also in facing similar struggles. Certainly economically, yeah. And would you say that part of the narrative that it's been fed about racialized communities is sort of you need to give those poor whites someone to feel better than? I think that's something other writers have have mentioned that then they don't notice if you give them the dream that they can join the elite and you tell them that they're better than those you, you position you make a class that's lower than them that they can be better than they don't notice that they're really 
in the same place. Yeah, my understanding of even the um, slave trade in the U.S. was that there were lower class white workers, white workers yeah. who were then given authority over the, the black slaves. Yeah. And that wasn't about giving them authority. It was about control for the overseers. Yeah. It was about dividing. It was about separating on racial lines. So it's saying to the, the lower class white worker, you are slightly better than this. So that you shouldn't be as angry. Don't join forces with them, even though we're, we're oppressing everyone. Don't join forces with them, oppress them separately, and we'll give you an extra biscuit. And yes. So I think this is also rooted in the politics and the culture of all of this is this division. They continue to sow these seeds. Occasionally you see the light where there's moments where we, there is a moment of unity where clarity, where we all actually understand, you know, the Occupy Wall Street was a, was a moment that perhaps for all of us spoke to one thing, where is the 99 versus one is a very yeah. powerful sort of ideal, because I think that is truly reflective of what we're, we're talking about. So, yeah, I think it is all of this. And, and we should not buy into that, because that is not what this is about. You know, and again, to think, return to indigenous thought, I mean, this is really, fundamentally, this is about us overcoming capitalism and the tools of capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, white supremacy, all of these have been methods to enforce this particular type of neoliberal thought. Which oppresses all of us. Uh, colonialism Indeed. is not an indigenous problem. It, it is negatively affected and, and robbed everyone of something. Yeah. Hegemony, patriarchy, misogyny, these concepts found within capitalism and other structures have negatively affected uh, Joe Canada, too. He just uh, he, I guess he doesn't know it yet. And so in the fight, I think we have more in common than we understand. But also, let's not forget, Trudeau has given us free entrance into provincial parks this year. So maybe, maybe <laughs> because we can all go camping together. There's where the solidarity happens inside. I don't of, camp. You don't camp? <laughs> Damn. It'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, we have a good vantage point for an advanced state of this going on in the U.S. And it'll be interesting to see as, as we go along in the Trump era, which seems to be wildly uncontrollable, but driven by a specific brand of this political thought and political action. Which, again, is affecting the politics and movement in this country. Let's not. And, and we keep talking about having to do this on the show, but we will start to connect the Trump era back to Canada in a more real way O'Leary? on this podcast. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it even it's I think it's even more deep rooted than that. It goes much deep rooted than even the the individuals. But what's interesting when you see. Trump tried to force through something like the American Health Care Act or these sorts of things is there is a moment where the light switch and maybe it's just a moment goes on, but it goes on for everyone where suddenly the 99 one comes back for yeah. just maybe the light in the room is it's just a split second and you catch a glimpse of the, the angry white dad yelling at the uh, the congressman. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's, you know, the reckless way that Trump behaves as an individual and the way he's governing may actually, you know, and this is this is a securitist route to try to find out some sort of redemption in a, in a presidency like this, but the, the light may start to stay on a lot longer as this goes on because he's trying to pass these ever-repressive policies that aren't just about people of color. Hmm. They're not just about traditionally marginalized groups. They're, it is a class, completely and utterly class-based. And I think when you start to see that, I hope... People in the States will become active to realize that they shouldn't be fighting 
Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is actually aligned with a lot of the same issues that they're fighting for, but from a specific point of view and for a specific constituency. But they're arguing for the same economic equality that a whole lot of other people need to be arguing for as well. And so maybe as you have an oligarch, you have this person trying to seize, attempt a coup in a Western democracy and one that is strident on transparency. This may be his great downfall is that, you know, in the States and Canada, there is a... The electorate demands a certain amount of transparency, even though there's much that goes on that we don't see. But we demand a certain amount. And that may be enough, that window, where they will do something so egregious that the light will come on for everyone. And that may be a unifying moment for all of us. Which is partly what happened with uh, with Idle No More mm. and, and Bill C-45. When, when Harper withdrew protections from the Navigable Waters Act and just, just said, nope, none of this water is protected anymore, these rivers and lakes, thousands of them, the protections were removed from. Canadians went, uh, wait a minute, the river where my cottage is or the lake that I grew up on or where my where my clean drinking water comes from. So in a weird way, Harper did bring this like really powerful movement, I don't know more, together. Without Harper, does I don't know more happen? Probably not, right? So in a weird way, we need Kelly Leach, you know? <laughs> in the weirdest wow. way. And I think that's the end of this interview. <laughs> Kelly Leach, we hope you win. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for coming in, Jesse. That was a very enjoyable conversation. Lots of lots of thought and food for thought going forward. And I uh, hope to hear from you again on Commons. Thanks so much for having me, Chi Miigwech. That's our show for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. You can follow me at D Rodrigue on Twitter. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. And I'm Ryan McMahon. You can follow me on Twitter at RM Comedy. Follow Canada Land Commons on Twitter at Canada Land CMNS. Check out our website at CanadaLandShow.com slash comments. And you can email us at comments at CanadaLandShow.com. Our Patreon page is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. Thanks again to Commons' exclusive sponsor, Wealth Simple. Get your first $10,000 managed for free for two years at WealthSimple.com slash Commons. If you like what we do, please support us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.